0: Welcome to this week's episode of Getting on the Green. I'm thrilled to welcome in Brandon Purdeck. He's got a lot of experience and uh, he's a University of Florida Gator, so, you know, he he already has a a little bit of love in my heart, um, so... (laughs) <laughs> Go Gators! So um, let's let's get right into it. So Brandon, tell us a little bit about um, a little bit more about yourself, other than kind of the schooling and where you are from. Like I already mentioned.
1: Sure. So uh, born and raised in South Florida. Uh, currently living down here in Miami, Florida, uh, in the in the Brickell area. Um, we're in the commercial real estate business and in the finance space. Um, me personally, uh, I've been been born and raised in south florida i've always loved loved the market down here and um love to travel big car enthusiast, um and enjoy learning more about the market every day and, and following new projects meeting with new people and certainly a passion of mine and have kind of merged uh my personal love for real estate and business uh in real estate to kind of uh take that that's what takes up most of my free time
0: Okay, so um, I didn't. I wasn't gonna ask this before, but you mentioned cars. What's your What's your favorite car? I probably. Have if to you say, could choose yeah, but, one, you know, it, uh, however expensive or old, even if you know they don't exist anymore, if you could choose one car throughout history, what is it?
1: <laughs> I probably have to choose the Ferrari Enzo, but have to work. You have
0: one of those. <laughs> yeah, a couple, a couple more deal deals under your belt to to afford one of those. Um, so. Tell us, tell us what you're doing now. What do, you, what do you do for a living?
1: So I'm the vice president of originations for Aries Capital here in Miami. Uh, we're a commercial real estate finance firm. uh, specialize in arranging equity and debt financing for commercial real estate properties throughout the country. We've had a, a niche uh, where we specialize in hospitality. Um, we've done several billion dollars of financings, hospitality, industrial, self-storage, um, multifamily retail office, um, pretty much all the major food groups. We've done deals in almost all 50 states and we're not geographically constrained so we're able to kind of go nationwide. We we specialize in deals that um, are typical non-bank deals, um, so clients that are are looking to put together transactions, whether it's new acquisitions, new ground up developments, and are seeking debt and or equity capital um, that may not fit the traditional guidelines or, or programs of traditional banks, um, whether it be higher leverage, they're looking for non-recourse, they're looking for a more creative structure. That's kind of where we come in and have gotten very creative, um, putting together the, the capital stack. We also have um, a niche in where we do a lot of deals that have some sort of tax credit equity component, and we've also been active in the Opportunity Zone space when that legislation came out as well.
0: All right, so there's a couple things I want to ask you about, but I want to step back a little bit and talk slightly about um, your education at uh, UF. When you got the MSIRE, um, did you have a book of clients already? Because I, I was under the impression that, and I, and I may be wrong, uh, definitely... Um, You know, tell me if I'm wrong, but I was under the impression that you needed some sort of experience in real estate or a book of clients, something along those lines, to you know uh, either make the MSIRE useful or be accepted, something along those lines. So can you can you explain that real quick?
1: Yeah, definitely. So the the University of Florida MSIRE program uh, was very fortunate to be a part of it. Um, They pride themselves on. The, the advisory board network that comes along with the program. And that advisory board consists of anywhere about two to 300 real estate professionals that are mainly located in Florida, but also nationwide. And they kind of act as your sounding board and also your built-in built network, um, which helps you get placed into the role that you're looking for and also helps you network around with other professionals um, in terms of having to have any previous experience or and things like that, it wasn't a requirement, although my family is involved in real estate uh, throughout Florida uh, and in Texas and have always kind of been around real estate. My father's in real estate, so certainly had some exposure from an early age in that regard um, and then uh, started the program to kind of further further those efforts and, and, and knowledge and that's ultimately how I got my role at Ares Capital almost five years ago and have been very grateful for the people that I've met through the University of Florida program and, and beyond.
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm a big advocate of always um, advancing oneself, whether it be getting um, self-educated or getting um, you know certifications of different types. Even if it has nothing to do with what you're doing, advancing your your brain making your brain work hard and strengthening it and working it in different ways i'm a i'm a big advocate of so um, i'm going to i'm definitely going to look it's into it's also
1: things that it's also things that you can do to make yourself more marketable mm-hmm.
0: um,
1: and the in addition to the kind of i guess hard skills that you learn uh, throughout the program excel modeling um, all the book work and book knowledge that that you kind of learn along with it um, a big part of that program and experience was the networking aspect and, um, getting, uh, assign a mentor, um, which is, Oh, they do the
0: assign things. you a mentor.
1: Yeah. So part of, part of the program, they, um, you, you choose from the list of advisory board members, which are typically pretty tenured professionals, um, throughout their industry, respective industries. And you reach out to three of them. You ask, Hey, can I, can I kind of be your mentee for this for this year that I'm in this program? And most board members are pretty open to it and uh, open up their network and set up meetings and, and events and um, and send you to events and introduce you to other people and invite you to their office and uh, pretty much do everything they can to help you wow. um, find the right opportunity. That's so great. Um, that that was uh, a big part of why I wanted to participate in the program.
0: Wow. Okay, so let's get back into the actual substance of um, what we're talking about today. And in case uh, any of the guests couldn't have guessed it, it is about arranging capital. So what's involved in arranging capital? Why can't somebody just go to a bank and, you know, get money?
1: Yeah, so if if it was only that easy, right? (laughs) (laughs) Um, So we we specialize in deals that are a little more complex um, and... I mean, there are deals where if the borrower has the right credentials and the right uh, size balance sheet and relationships, they can just go right to their bank and say, hey, I need a loan for this asset or this project. And, and they don't typically engage a mortgage banking firm like ours. Typically, most of our clients are more entrepreneurial, real estate investors. They're typically doing uh, GPLP structures where they're raising equity and then also looking for uh, a more creative set of financing. So that's that's typically where, where we come in. We Aries Capital. Uh, we've been around for almost thirty years. Have done billions of dollars of deals, and have relationships across the board with Wall Street firms, banks, life insurance companies, family offices, and other private equity funds and debt funds. So we have a pretty wide, ac- a pretty wide distribution and pretty wide access to different sources of capital, and. Unlike uh, a lot of things, real estate is not commercial. Real estate is not one size fits all. So one lender might be doing more multifamily than another. One lender might want to do hotels. One lender might not. Um, One lender might like this geographic area. One might not. So it's really our job to understand um, what all of our hundreds of sources of capital uh, look for in a deal. And then once we have a request from a, from a sponsor or a borrower, developer, we, it's our job to understand their needs, understand their deal, and then match them with the best source of capital. And as, as I mentioned, typically, um, our clients are more entrepreneurial. We're mainly focusing on deals. Um, and our clients are mainly focusing on deals in the 10 to $100 million range. so it's it's below it's below the radar of the Blackstones of the world, uh, the Starwoods of the world. So it's um, it, it's not super institutionalized, and uh, but the, the sources of capital that have started to come into that space have been fairly institutionalized and uh, more complex, and they're more willing to do non recourse. They're more willing to go higher leverage, um, and they're more willing to creatively structure something where. Uh, your local bank may not um, may not be as inclined to do so. Um, the other thing is that obviously not every not every developer borrower is 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 a billionaire or or, oh, they're or not extremely wealthy <laughs> enough where banks uh, where banks um, may not have an issue with their balance sheet. So uh-huh. we typically um, are doing deals that are non recourse, so it's more asset based lending, and uh, it's our job to find uh-huh. something that. Is fits the sponsor's business plan as well as gets them the best uh, so the best match and source of capital for their deal and be able to execute their business plan.
0: So um, you are more about finding and locating funds versus providing funds.
1: Correct. So in the past, Aries Capital has been a direct lender, or balance sheet lender, um, mezzanine lender. Uh, right now, our business is more. Um, More advisory, and we are an intermediary. Um, So our job is arranging the capital, um, brokering brokering the capital per se.
0: Okay, so can you just give you know a, a couple of brief examples of what types of sources of capital there are that you all deal with? You know, I'm I'm a client of yours. I have a crazy complicated deal that I need funding for. Who who are like the first three people or the first three? Uh, sources of funds that you're going to to look to see if they match my needs.
1: Yeah, so on the I can uh, I we typically break it up by equity and debt. So I can maybe start with the equity side. On the equity side, there's typically three main sources. Um, we have uh, insurance insurance companies, high net worth individuals, uh, as as well as just ch- your general private equity funds where um, they've raised they've raised uh, a series of funds or a series of capital um, to then go out and find operating partners to to back. so our, our clients are typically the sponsor owner operators and they're looking for that majority LP partner um, to, to take down the deal with and most of our equity deals are in that 90 10 80 20 uh, type structure. Um, On the debt side, um, it's a series of either CMBS lenders, if it's a permanent stabilized asset, uh, bridge lenders, uh, bridge funds that have raised funds to make transitional short-term loans, Mm -hmm. um, as well as your typical banks and credit unions on the debt side is is typically our go-to sources.
0: So I know you mentioned that you all kind of specialize in um, like hotels and other sources of you know, things things along the lines of hotels. Um, mm-hmm. But so, how would financing a hotel or that type of deal differ from a, another type of deal for you know another commercial deal, whether it's a retail center, industrial, whatever it may be?
1: Yeah. So every every commercial real estate asset type has its own nuances in terms of underwriting requirements and how the deal is looked at by by lenders and equity sources. Um, for example, a hotel, um, you, it's done on a pro forma basis based on uh, the average daily rate, um, what you project the occupancy, and then what ultimately the REVPAR, which stands for Revenue Per Available Room, is a fairly commonly used um, uh, primary metric for evaluating the success of a hotel. And then that REVPAR index is kind of put against its competition to see how much of the market share that it's, it's capturing. Um, and then the other, another big thing with hotels is is who who the management company is. Um, one thing a lot of people may not realize is that hotels are franchises, similar to fast food restaurants. Um, when you stay at a Hilton or Hyatt or a Marriott, it, it's not te- it's not always owned, and typically is not owned by that parent company. It's typically owned by a owner operator investor. And they license that name, the Marriott name, the Hyatt name, the Hilton name. And then they either have a, a local management company that does all the staffing and, and that kind of thing. Um, or it's family run, which uh, a lot of these hotels mm. are are family owned and operated. Um, and in terms of in, in a hotel, it's similar, similar and different in, in, to, let's say, a multifamily property where a hotel, you have to rent the room every single night. Uh, you have to fill up the hotel every single night. Whereas uh, an apartment building, you have predictability of long-term leases or at least, at least yearly leases. Mm -hmm. Um, so that cash flow is fairly, fairly predictable. Whereas a hotel, you have to, there are certain indexes and metrics. Um, there's a, a data provider called star STR Smith travel research. That is typically the gold standard for hotel data. And, um, hotel data and metrics so what it does is you look at Miami Beach for example it shows you all the hotels in Miami Beach it shows you what the typical occupancy is Mm. what the typical what the typical rate is and um, once you kind of formulate your pro forma based on that information you can get a sense of how the hotel will perform and then similar to a shopping center or an office building where you have that predictability of cash flows with the leases you have in place hotels it's Literally day by day. Mm-hmm. So, um, obviously the the coronavirus has um, impacted hotels. Just dipped uh, into
0: my next question. Keep going.
1: Yeah, so, <laughs> yes yeah, So hotels have been, um, I would say, the most negatively impacted uh, asset type out of out of this whole pandemic, and will will also be the slowest uh, to recover, in my opinion, as well. Um, which is unfortunate because the hotel industry was seeing. Record numbers, record performance. Uh, this past year, even before Corona, was the first year that we were projecting negative rev par growth, so so negative negative NOI growth, um, and Corona really just uh, kind of put some gas on that on that uh, on that fire in a, in a negative way.
0: Okay, I mean, I have a uh, a buddy whose family is in hotels. Uh, I think throughout the country, but certainly in the Naples area. Um, and he told me that his group or his network of hotel owners that he was talking to, they were freaking out at the beginning. They said the hotel industry might never recover, they're really, really nervous, so uh, that's, it's interesting to hear somebody on the uh, capital side of it saying you know, something along the lines of you know, the same thing. Um, Yeah.
1: um, In in addition to that, um, yeah, there's certainly a lot of worry out there among hotel owners and um, a a lot of uh, a lot of hotels are financed uh, with CMBS financing, um, which can be a good thing and a bad thing. Um, A good thing. It's non recourse. It's typically higher leverage, better pricing. But when you have unforeseen uh, events like coronavirus, where it, it, it absolutely cripples the asset and the cash flow, um, the types, the type of financing in place makes it a little more difficult to work it out so there's um, and we don't have to go too much into the weeds here on this but um, loans are either defaulting or getting transferred to what's called special servicing which uh, uh, the special servicers are in charge of working out the asset and um, so yeah we, we don't have to get too into detail here because we could probably go on that topic for an hour but um hotel industry is certainly um, going to need some help and I know industry groups have been lobbying to, to get um, the relief that hotel owners need which uh, I hope happens uh, sooner than later and hopefully we return to some level of normalcy mm-hmm. soon and we have concerts and business travel and events mm-hmm. and conferences and conventions because um, the hotel industry is certainly dependent on all of that.
0: So our are- I mean I, I don't wanna go too much into this, but do hotels get kind of sliding scale interest rates based on their um their expected occupancy or once they locked into once they're locked into their financing, they're locked in. So for instance, if you have, you know, let's say excellent um occupancy and, you know, all of a sudden it goes down like this and you're down to zero, uh, is the Lender gonna want to raise that interest rate, or you know, or are they locked into what they originally had when they were, for instance, fully occupied?
1: Yeah. So there's the answer is it depends. Uh-huh. Uh, typical, <laughs> uh, typical attorney answer. Although I'm not an attorney, um, so it, it depends. Uh, if you lock in an interest rate uh, from the get go uh, and it's a fixed rate loan, um, your interest rate does not change. Um, there's also another type of loan called a floating rate loan, which, um, can, can float depending on, it's essentially like a fixed versus variable interest rate for a home, like a home mortgage Mm -hmm. people are probably familiar with. Um, and it's typically based on LIBOR. Um, so it's typically floating off of LIBOR, but there there are certain, um, covenants and, and structure in the loan where if the loan is not covering debt service at a certain ratio, so if it's not Hitting a one two five or a one three or a one four debt service coverage ratio, that could trigger some negative impacts on the loan. Um, but in, besides the fact that it's floating rate, floating over LIBOR, um, the interest rate doesn't change solely based on the quality of the hotel. Um, but that all that stuff does go into determining your interest rate. When the the lender is making the loan, um, they take it into account. Historical occupancy, historical performance, what the income looks like, what the location looks like, what the flag is, and the term "flag" is uh, another word for brand. Um, it's kind of like just hotel lingo for brand. Um, so that flag could be Hilton, Hyatt, Marriott, and then all their brands below that, because everyone always, everyone knows there's there's a ton of new brand. There's a ton of brands out there. So you have uh, anything from Hampton Inn to Waldorf Astoria to the W to the courtyard Marriott and so there's, those are all flags.
0: Interesting. Um, So while we're somewhat on that topic, can you talk a little bit about, um, when you're getting financing, it doesn't necessarily have to be for hotels in general, but let's take a kind of a more macro view. Um, Can you talk a little bit about loan to value ratios? Kind of what you all kind of service or what banks are trying to service or other lenders are trying to service?
1: Yeah, definitely. So I would say pre-COVID, uh, a fairly common structure in terms of loan to value was somewhere between seventy and seventy-five percent. Um, so just
0: just for um, you know any new listeners, can you explain what seventy to seventy-five percent means when it comes to loan to value ratio?
1: Yeah, definitely. So seventy to seventy-five percent loan to value means that the debt component of the capital stack is seventy to seventy-five percent. of of the value of of the asset. Okay, so the person's
0: only putting down about 25% of their own cash.
1: Correct, so down payment of 25 to 30% uh, was fairly typical. Um, I would say post-COVID, we're seeing most deals get done between 55 and 70%. Um, So it has come down fairly significantly. Um, I'd say the average, The average point uh, that lenders want to be at, I would say, is really no more than 65 percent of value. Um, And we have gotten higher and and can go higher up the capital stack. So beyond 65, 70, 75 percent with what's called a mezzanine component. Um, So kind of like a A note, B note. um, uh, That's typically how it's structured, where um, someone takes a riskier piece of, of the deal where if the, if the loan, if the value declines um, past that point, they're the first part of the, the capital stack to get impaired. Um, but I would say most lenders, um, even more opportunistic lenders, debt funds, insurance companies um, are, are topping out around 65% for the most part. Um, and then you have deals like industrial deals that are very in demand right now, warehouses, Uh, distribution centers, logistics centers that could command higher loan-to-values because there's not as much value, I guess, impairment or risk with that asset type right now as industrial has undergone a a large boom.
0: So why is it that a lender will adjust those loan-to-value ratios as opposed to just increasing the interest rate? Why would, it, why would it not be one versus kind of both? What, you know, can, you, can you talk a little bit about that? You know, if, if they were ready and willing pre-COVID to do, let's say, the 75% loan-to-value ratio at, let's say, I'm just going to throw out a random number, at 3%, why wouldn't they still be willing to do that 75% loan-to-value ratio at maybe 6%? Do, that doesn't cover the risk, or whatever number it may be. Um, why? Why would they lower that loan-to-value ratio?
1: Yeah. So everything in in commercial real estate, especially on the on the finance side, is, is all a function of risk. Um, mm-hmm. there, there's there's obviously there's always a price for everything, um, which everyone realizes. Um, if you if you pay a lender enough interest rate or or give additional collateral, um, there's always someone willing to, to take that risk. Um, it's just a matter of how expensive can it get, <laughs> um, but for the most part, um, it's not. A, it's not such an easy function of keeping the, the the loan to value the same, but raising the interest rate. Sometimes it is, um, but for the most part, lenders, banks, debt funds um, have realized that the market has changed. Um, I was just reading a report um, on CMBS loans that loans are getting written down on average about 27% um, uh, value. So if that lender lent 75% uh, loan of value and now the value has gone down 27%, their their money is now at risk. Um, So they're they're starting to get impaired. So I think it's just a matter of lenders waiting to see where this kind of shakes out, where this bottoms out. Because although we're in this kind of roaring recovery, uh, or so-called recovery, um, the real estate values are not not super correlated to the stock market values. Mm -hmm. And um, you have assets such as office buildings that nobody's using them right now. Everyone's working from home. No one's staying in hotels. No one is shopping except for at grocery stores. Um, Nobody is, um, uh, what else? Uh, Yeah, like so, those kind of three examples; mm-hmm. those three asset types are are starting to get hit pretty pretty hard in terms of the, in terms of their values, um, and lenders don't want to. Lenders are always more risk averse um, than investors. So on the debt side, um, the the best case scenario is you lend someone the money, they pay you the coupon, the four percent, five percent, three percent, whatever it is, you get your money back, and that's it. Whereas the equity investor, they take the risk, they get all the all the glory of the upside. So there's less incentive for the lender to, I guess, play along or take that risk without really the return that if the return's not going to be there. Mm-hmm. So they're always more risk averse and and more stringent on their underwriting than than let's say the equity investor.
0: Does it come down to what they can get in return if somebody defaults? So for instance, if they, you know, if, if they were asking for that 75% loan to value, and you know, so they were giving up 75% and they would, if somebody defaulted, they were getting basically 25% more of what they put in. Now, if somebody defaults, are they getting 50% for instance, if they're at a 50% loan to value?
1: So you're saying if um, somebody buys an asset and puts 50% down, gets 50% financing?
0: And then they default. Mm-hmm. Is, is that one reason why they're not necessarily just raising the the interest rate? Because in the end, if I'm going to default, I'm probably going to default on my 4%, 3%, 5%, whatever it may be. If I'm defaulting, I'm probably defaulting. So is right. that why they're they're kind of affecting the loan-to-value ratios as opposed to the interest rates yeah
1: so it's re- it's really a, it's really a function of two things um, so number one the more equity someone has in the deal the more incentive the, the more the incentives are aligned whereas uh, kind of what happened in the in the 2008 financial crisis in the residential space people were getting 95 100% 105 110% financing where they co- they're, they're getting paid to do the deal um, <laughs> if they if if shit hits the fan um, oh well, uh, I don't have any money to lose. Um, Whereas now, if someone's coming to the deal, let's say on a $10 million deal, they're coming to the table with $5 million, they, number one, they're sure as heck gonna do everything they can to not lose that $5 million. Mm -hmm. Number two, the fact that it's a lower loan to value means there's a lower amount of annual debt service on the property. So that means that the property can sustain some more on the road. So let's say on a hotel, um, instead of the hotel running eighty-five percent occupancy and it runs sixty-five, um, it can sustain it can sustain that drop. Or if the apartment building goes from one hundred percent occupied to eighty percent occupied, they can still make their payments because the, the 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 asset can service the debt with a lot of with a lot of comfort and, and a lot of a lot of breathing room. Um, so that's that's really. Um, the two things that are making lenders more comfortable is there's more skin in the game, which obviously always helps, because mm-hmm. um, someone's gonna do everything they can to not to not lose that equity. Um, so the more equity they have in the deal, the, com- the more comfortable the lenders are, and the more comfortable the asset can service the, the debt service.
0: All right, so we are getting towards the end of a to- our time, but I wanna ask a couple more questions. Um, sure. Are you seeing deals get done, even in yeah. COVID?
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, we've gotten some multifamily deals done post COVID or in COVID. We are closing on a retail acquisition in Chicago, uh, soon here. Um, so deals are, deals are getting done. Um, they're getting done at lower leverage points as we, as we just discussed, interest rates, um, are at all time lows. Um, so interest rates are very attractive right now. Um, for example, we're, we're financing a self-storage refi in the in the low three percent range. Um, multi-family we've been seeing getting done some 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 deals even below three yeah. percent. Um, industrial deals also in that three to four percent range. Um, hotels are fairly difficult right now. Um, we we see a lot of challenges and uphill battles in the hotel space. Um, so we're we're working through some of uh, some hotel deals with our clients since we have a lot of hotel clients. We're doing our best to help them through this time. Whether it's helping helping them raise some additional preferred equity or pace financing or different other creative sources of capital, ground leases um, where we can help them get through this storm. But it's certainly not going to be easy for hotels, and not going not going to sugarcoat it. It's, it's going to be pretty pretty ugly. Um, but we we're really focusing on on the asset types that lenders are, are looking for, so we're doing storage, we're doing medical office, we're doing multifamily, family um, we're doing some grocery anchored retail. Um, so it really, uh, you, you just have to kind of adapt with, uh, with the changes because um, the capital markets, they change daily. One day lenders want to do these types of deals, one day they don't. Um, and now, I mean, hotels were getting done left and right pre COVID and now lenders don't even want to touch hotels. Uh, and the ones that do, it's fairly expensive pricing. So, um, which kind of goes back to the fact that there's a price for everything. So, um, whereas pre COVID it might be four, three, four, three, four 3 4 percent 5%. Now it's 10, 12%, something like that for the, cause lenders want to be compensated for that risk. Um, but yeah, those are certainly getting done and we're certainly busier than ever, so. um, Interesting. Can't complain about that. So
0: how, last question, I promise. Uh, How can an investor or somebody who wants to, or let's just say a buyer, how can they position themselves properly or like give me your your top tip um, for somebody who wants to purchase something and they're coming to you what can they do to put themselves in the best position to get accepted or financing at the lowest possible rate?
1: Yeah, definitely, that's a great question. Um, so there's a few things that I would recommend um, to people out there looking to purchase commercial real estate. And number one, um, it's, it's best to always partner with someone if you don't have the experience yourself um, to partner with either a firm or another individual that has done those types of deals that you're looking to do before. Um, and obviously everyone has their first deal, uh, there's always going to be a first time for everything for everybody. So for example, let's say you're looking to purchase a multifamily building, you're, best, you're better off partnering with someone that has invested and has successfully exited um, multifamily deals. Um, the next thing is making sure you have the proper um, balance sheets in place. So whether you have the proper net worth and liquidity, um, or your partner has um, the the proper net worth and liquidity, so being being financially sound and, and bankable um, is one thing that you want to make sure. So whether it's whether you have the balance sheet yourself or whether you can bring in a partner that has the balance sheet, um, that's one thing that lenders want to see. Um, the next thing is to be realistic with your projections and your and your pro forma. Um, Lenders, uh, they're not they're not dumb, and and <laughs> uh, you want to make sure that you have um, a realistic pro forma and realistic expectations. So, if you're buying a let's say Class B or Class C multifamily property, and then after you put in let's say five thousand dollars a unit, and you're expecting to achieve X rents afterwards, it has to be realistic. So. If you're saying that the rents are gonna be $2,000 after the renovation, but the market's saying it's 1500 you have to be a little more realistic. And um, so all these things are, are, are things that lenders always do due diligence on um, in, the, in the loan process and underwriting process. Um, so I think just being as prepared and as realistic and as experienced um, in terms of track record, because that's that's one of the major th- major things that investors um, and also lenders look for is, is that track record of experience. So, if you don't have it personally, I'd recommend partnering with someone that does, and then eventually you'll get that experience and be able to kind of branch off on your own and, and do it
0: yourself. Those are great suggestions. I really I really like those because it um, even for myself as well as other investors. You know, I mean it's it's good to understand how to set yourself up to win before you even get into the race. You know, if you're getting into the race and you have no idea which direction you're running in, you, the likelihood of you winning is slightly diminished, or greatly diminished, not slightly, greatly diminished. Um, yeah,
1: yeah, defi- definitely. Um, I, to- I totally agree. And um, one, one thing that, um, that I've kind of taken away from the experience I've had thus far in, in the debt, mainly on the debt side of, of the business, um, we have, we do spend a lot of the time on the equity side as well. Um, our, our firm also owns commercial real estate, hotels, self-storage, land, um, some retail, and some multifamily. Um, so we do have kind of our, our equity hat. We also have our debt hat. So we really are in the market on a daily basis, talking to lenders, talking to to credit funds and debt funds. Um, so we understand what they what they're thinking and what they what they want to hear, what they don't want to hear. Um, so we really understand um, what it's like from the debt side, um, which is typically the more critical side. Because as I mentioned, the best thing that happens to a lender is that they get their money back, they make their coupon, and that's it. Whereas the the equity investor gets all that upside. And if they hit if they hit a home run out of the park and they make three four times their money, great. The lender doesn't see any of that. So they're the ones that have to kind of bring people. Down to earth, sometimes, uh, uh, which we've seen um, happen sometimes. Um, so that's that's. Uh, it's important to understand how the debt side of the business thinks, because the availability of debt capital is typically what drives transaction volume.
0: Wow, that's great. Um, I, I appreciate you explaining all of this. Um, But unfortunately, we are out of time. I'm going to let you get going. I know you have things you need to do. Um, On behalf of my listeners and myself, I really want to thank you. Uh, This was very educational, and hopefully it sets us all up to be more successful in our future endeavors. So, Brandon, thank you very much. No,
1: thank thank you, Craig, and thanks for having me and
0: and your time. That was a great episode with uh, Brandon. He certainly taught us a lot about How to think about the uh, financing side of things, where to get your capital from, uh, definitely different sources, and uh, how to set yourself up for success before you even really get into the game. Um, Next week, we are going to be having an individual talk about auctions, such a cool way of getting into the real estate game is auctions. Not the standard way of acquiring assets, but something that could help in getting a great deal on a property. Uh, So until then, we will see you next time on the green.